And they recognized that they needed some standards. They needed some contracts. They didn't want college players coming in and out of games week by week. And they didn't want players switching teams week from week. They wanted some more structure. So they met in a car dealership in Canton, Ohio in 1920 and formed what became the National Football League. And that is why the Hall of Fame is in Canton, because the NFL was founded there, not because pro football was born there. Hi, I'm Greg Fisseri, author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And this is a coffee table format book with a great story in it. So my great-grandfather, Bob Shiring, was the greatest center of the pre-NFL era, first in Pittsburgh, the birthplace of professional football, starting in 1892. And Big Bob, as they called him, became a pro football player first in 1901 with the Homestead Library and Athletic Club that was the world champion at that time by beating a team from Philadelphia. And pro football failed in Pittsburgh for after 1902 because it just wasn't making any money and they didn't think it would be successful. However, the Maslin Tigers in Ohio brought him and three of his teammates out there to help win the Ohio State Championship against the Canton Bulldogs and uh, Akron teams and others in Ohio. And pro football continued to flourish out west, as they say, uh, for a few more years until 1906 when an alleged gambling scandal that has been a cold case for over 100 years, the first era of pro football, and it was my job to add the photos that I inherited from my great-grandfather to the solving of the cold case, which I did to create a very unique and interesting book. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Greg Fisseri's in the finance business. Uh, but he has researched and written Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. The story focuses on western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio, and as he just told us, Mr. Fissery found that his great-grandfather, which I make as Bob Shiring, is that, but that's not how you pronounce his name. How do you pronounce it? No, that's perfect. Bob Shiring is correct. All right, Bob. Bob Shiring was one of those early players in the 1890s. He was called the world's uh, greatest center. So this was your family's lore. I mean, you knew this uh, since you were a little kid? Yes, bits and pieces, but enough to really intrigue me and inspire me to know more about him because he was really the patriarch of our family and a very successful businessman and justice of the peace and leader in his small community with a funny name called Wilmerding, Pennsylvania, about 10 miles east of Pittsburgh. And it was a Westinghouse air brake company community, a company that still exists today, actually, making brakes for trains. And uh, he became also uh, the leader, the financial services leader of the Shiring Agency for, for everyone in that town, for their taxes and real estate and insurance and so he leveraged his success and reputation from his pro football career to become the guy who set our family up for the American dream. And so it was something I wanted to understand for myself and my family, and little did I know that it would grow into such a big story. 
Now, you researched this book for, what, 15 years? Part-time, yes, 15 years. Um, if it was full-time, I couldn't feed the family. So I, I continued doing my day job, which is uh, business valuation consulting or business appraisal. But whenever I had time with a working wife and busy kids coaching sports, I would just chip away and go online and research and find fascinating newspaper databases that are uh, available now, newspaper archives, newspaper.com. And with a quick search of a couple of key words, uh, it opened up a narrative that I, I couldn't imagine uh, about this amazing rivalry between Maslin and Canton that still lives on today. It's, it's almost like the Hatfields and McCoys. Um, <laughs> they, they, they really... Um, I mean, hate is a strong word, but I asked one of the old keepers of the flame out there, I mean, what is this rivalry all about, even still today, between the high schools that still call themselves the Maslin Tigers and Canton Bulldogs? I said, is it just kind of fun, or do you really hate them? He's like, oh, no, we really hate them. <laughs> so um, it, the, or they don't know why they hate them. Though. So it was a, a chance for me to go out, and I actually had the opportunity to speak last year at the Maslin High School uh, to the entire student body, about a thousand kids, two days before their rivalry game with Canton, and explain the origins of all this to them. So it was an incredible experience, and I, I feel like a second son in Maslin. <laughs> well, you should should feel that way. Maybe it's that very passion uh, that that made this place the birthplace of football. I mean, because people are really interested in it. No question. I mean. Something I learned in this process is how football, especially pro football, is more viscerally felt and, and, and passionate in the Midwest, and, and because that's where it started. You know, if you go when I tried to find authors and writers for, for this story, when I didn't want to write the book, which was never my intention, outside of the Midwest, it's like there just wasn't much interest in. in I couldn't get somebody. Well, they would say there's. There's not enough story there. And I said, you haven't even listened, you know, or, or started to learn the story. There's so much. And I, I did find somebody in Pittsburgh to, who wanted to write it, but just wasn't really wanting to dig in. So a publisher eventually said to me, I, I'll do this, but only if you write it because you know it and you love it and are so passionate about it and I want your voice in it. So I said, oh, this is going to be tough but I, I just started and uh he said that Peter was writing a success successful book is writing a, a horrible first draft so that's what i did uh greg fishery is uh is with us author of the book uh, gridiron legacy i'm not a sports fan at all and i'm certainly not a football fan which is he plays both ways when i do interviews with people about sports history but I have a real basic question. Your book is entitled Gridiron Legacy, and I've heard that word, the gridiron. But what does that mean in terms of football? Well, it's a little misunderstood. It's a good question. The word people think that the gridiron phrase comes from a, a period of a few years in the early 1900s when the field had a checkerboard chalk pattern on it. And the rules always kept evolving. And there was a time when the quarterback could not 
throw the ball until he got five yards out from where he received the ball from the center. And so they sort of had to estimate if he had moved enough to be able to throw the ball. And it was really inconvenient and inaccurate rule. So it didn't last very long, but the checkerboard pattern went away when they eventually just let the quarterback throw and, and or run from wherever he you know, received the snap. So that wasn't even actually true, though. The, the term gridiron comes from the word griddle, actually. So if you think about your grill or a, a griddle, before the checkerboard pattern, it, it, the word was used to just refer to the field that looked like a grill with, with the chalk stripes across it. You talk about uh, picking up the ball and throwing it. Your great-grandfather was involved in that act, wasn't he? The first time that was done, your great-grandfather Bob Shiring. In 1906, the, the forward pass was legalized for the first time. And Maslin, his team, happened to be the pro team that played, started their season uh, a little before some of the other pro teams that were waiting to see if they could pick up some of their players that Maslin cut. So he did snap the ball in the second game of their schedule. The first game, there was no, it was a muddy day and there was no uh, evidence or in the stories or that they threw the ball. But the second week, clearly the newspaper in Maslin claimed that they threw the ball for the first time and that it worked beautifully and they scored a couple touchdowns. And so, therefore, uh, my great-grandfather snapped the ball for that notable play. With many sports, there's this big to-do about paying the athletes. That was a big issue for football, wasn't it? Yes, it's never stopped. Even for college players there there was evidence hand, handwritten accounts by a fellow from Latrobe Pennsylvania just outside of Pittsburgh where Arnold Palmer was from that he his name was John Brawlier and they were very proud of him there and they still talk about him today and he lived a productive life there as a dentist until his whole life and he bragged about being paid ten dollars in and cake to play for a college team called Washington. I'm sorry if I'm getting this right. No, for for the Latrobe amateur team, he went to Washington and Jefferson College there, but uh, where he later also said he <laughs> received payment. So he became known as the first pro player for his whole life until the Hall of Fame opened in the 60s. They honored him with a lifetime pass to all NFL games, and that was thought to be their origin story. However, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, a, an accounting ledger was discovered from three years earlier in 1892 when another fellow received cash to play, an All-American from Yale named Heffelfinger. But Brailler, in his uh, voluminous diaries that are at a wonderful place called the Latrobe Area Historical Society, explained how he continued to get paid in, in different uh, by different teams and, and his uh, fellow college players at um, I, I believe it was West Virginia University at one point. He, he played for a lot of different schools and, and you could even play in graduate school or in dental school. And so um, it was clear that you know there was all some payola going on, but professionally. Um, 1892 is sort of the landmark for the start of uh, cash payments for football players. 
Greg Fisseri is author of the book Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And you speak of a period of chaos and scandal, which I think uh, erupts either in 1902 or 1906. Correct me about uh, that if you uh, would. What happened? So it's really the key to the whole story in, in the heart of the story. Uh, after 1902, pro football dies in Pittsburgh for business reasons, just didn't think they would ever make money at it. Maslin picks up my great-grandfather, Shiring, and three of his teammates, and pro football grows uh, dramatically for the, for the next few years. Uh, Canton brings all the pros from Philadelphia, including a fabulous character named Blondie Wallace, who was an All-American at Penn, a national champion, sort of an icon of the game to lead Canton's team and, and try to usurp the championship from Maslin. And that rivalry is rich in, in drama. They really started poaching players from each other and irritating each other, poking each other in the newspapers. And it was this really, for business reasons, as, as it turns out, I mean, they, they tried to sell papers and tickets to the games by, by provoking uh, this rivalry and stirring the, the, the community's passions. So that was an interesting lesson in, in media there. In 1906, just as it had was reaching its pinnacle in, in popularity, uh, gamblers allegedly in, infiltrated the game, the championships between um, these two teams. And I had heard the story from my grandmother even growing up, so knew it was true that uh, my great-grandfather, as the captain of the team, was offered a bribe to get his team to fix the outcome of this two-game series to split them with Canton and then maybe have a, a third game to sell more tickets, etc. Sounds like a, a boxing kind of thing you know, in modern days. Mm-hmm. But he would not take the bribe, unlike the Black Sox 13 years later, who did fix the World Series. And uh, he was recognized for his honesty and integrity in that situation, which she was very proud of. However, the Maslin newspaper, in telling the story and trying to absolve their own team of being implicated in it, accused the Canton captain of colluding in this scheme, and it started a legal drama that never got to court, but the fallout from it ended pro football because people were disgusted that that it was appeared to be crooked Mm. and solving that historically uh which has been for over 100 years unknown exactly what happened what was the key to my story and i found a court file from the with the depositions that never um got to court to to tell exactly what happened and without giving too much away it it gives the heroes and pioneers of the game whose story has been lost a very positive um light going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, was this the point where Jim Thorpe is brought in, the famous Native American and athlete, and to, to kind of save football? Exactly. Well, the point was 10 years after that scandal. So then it's without pro football, basically for 10 years, just sort of some semi-pro ball around Ohio. A young boy in 1906, who was the Canton ball boy, basically, Jack Cusack, was now a, a young man, professional business person, but he was asked by some of the Canton leaders if if 
maybe it was time to try pro football again, that it was, it was fun. People have sort of gotten over the scandal and, and we could try again. And he said, if we brought Jim Thorpe in, who was the world's greatest athlete from the 1912 Olympics, won the decathlon, pentathlon, a real icon in American sports, had also played college football at the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He could bring people back to the, the pro game. And it was risky, and they, but it worked. And, and uh, people came out in thousands, maybe seven, ten thousand per game was a big crowd then to see him play. And so five years go on, and all of a sudden you've got about 14 professional teams throughout the Midwest. And they recognized that they needed some standards. They needed some contracts. They, need, they didn't want college players coming in and out uh, of game uh, week by week. And they didn't want players switching teams week from week. They wanted some more structure. So they met in a car dealership in Canton, Ohio in 1920 and formed what became the National Football League. And that is why the Hall of Fame is in Canton, because the NFL was founded there, not because pro football was born there. Pro football didn't like just come fully formed uh, out of uh, let's. Well, I'm I'm thinking of a, something from Greek mythology, which actually has to do with one of the talks I heard you give about how football has to do with the story of the hero and the hero's search for the holy holy grail. But before there was, I mean, football similar to other games like their soccer which is what the world calls football as opposed to the United States. And there's rugby. Uh, did those sports precede, uh, prof- you know, American professional football, or, and, and which took some ideas from them, or is, did it, was it created in a different way? Well, I spent a few pages at the beginning of the book in, in a preface sort of, Explaining the evolution of ball games in general, back to medieval times. And there's some great sketches and art from these uh, European games where they uh, kick the ball in the streets all over town, trying, you know, trying to get over the other town's line. And there's always some goal line of, of sorts. And eventually, uh, soccer formed first over there. The word soccer coming from the word association. Um, a, a short abbreviation of that uh, turned into soccer, association football. And eventually, I believe it was in the 1860s, there's a, a school in the UK called the Rugby School. And a, a young fellow named William Webb Ellis got bored playing a low-scoring game of soccer and near the end of the game pick, decided to pick up the ball and run with it. And kids chased him. And uh, the light bulb went on and said, hmm, there's a, there's a new game here, uh, a carrying sort of form of the game. And so that developed and, and, and organized, and uh, immigration came to America, and so both games came here. But uh, another moment of inspiration of sorts came uh, unclear exactly when, sometime perhaps during the Civil War. There, there were sketches in magazines of soldiers playing a game called football in a very loose form uh, that was not soccer or rugby, and and some new rules started to uh, catch on and be experimented with. And there were many forms of it, but what is clear is 
1869, when life returned to normal again after the Civil War, that the first college football game was played between Princeton and Rutgers in New Jersey and still looked very much like rugby, but had a, a few different rules. And slowly, uh, the Ivy League leaders, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, took ran with the game and started standardizing it. And in particular, a fellow named Walter Camp, who was the father of American football, led committees that became the NCAA to continue to establish unique rules. And a, a main one was when the snapback from the center replaced the uh, the rugby scrum so that you could call, you know, plays. There were set plays uh, after each tackle. So that's kind of how it evolved. And, and eventually... Um, College football proceeded, and young adults wanted to play amateur football after college into the 1890s. Pittsburgh had a lot of money from the Industrial Revolution, and they sponsored clubs for for young men to play football uh, on the weekends. And eventually, with rivalries developed, compensation happens, and somebody gets paid in 1892 and that was the start of pro football and we march on through the uh, the decades and what a lot of us think of as the start of national football league or pro football was the the first super bowl which took place in 1967 correct packers chiefs so some people think that was the start of the nfl or pro football and it was not. It was just the merger of the National Football League and the American Football League. And the AFL is sort of what Live Golf was recently or, or now. It was a renegade league that wanted to try its own rules, eventually couldn't survive on its own, and merged with the NFL. So that was 1967. But the National Football League itself was formed in 1920, as I said, and we just had the centennial of that in 2020. But that was not the start of pro football, which happened 28 years earlier. Gridiron Legacy is the book, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. Uh, Franco Harris, the late uh, football player, wrote the f uh, foreword to your book. Can you explain that? Right. What a great honor to have such a, a legend and icon uh, support my project. Franco Harris was a football running back, a member of four Super Bowl winning teams as a Pittsburgh Steeler. He's best known for his role in arguably the most famous play in National Football League history. The Steelers qualified for the playoffs in 1972. Their first round game against Oakland was highlighted by Harris's game-winning shoestring catch that came to be called the Immaculate Reception. The play occurred with 22 seconds remaining, the Steelers trailing 7-6. to six. Pittsburgh quarterback Terry Bradshaw threw a pass that was deflected toward the ground by a Raider defender before Harris appeared to snatch the ball and run into the end zone. While the play was controversial, it was ruled a touchdown, and the Steelers won the game. Franco Harris died of natural causes at the age of 72 in 2022. Very special, man. When he passed away tragically last year, right before the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception play that he was involved in, 
nobody's ever said a bad word about Franco, and it's and it's all true. He, he's a a kind, gentle soul who who just wanted to help people in, in any way possible. And um, when I met him in a, in a committee at the Senator John Hines History Center in Pittsburgh in their sports museum in 2012, I was honored to be asked to participate in that due to some work I'd done with them. Uh, Franco was fascinated right away with, with my story because he was such a passionate historian of the game and recognized the opportunity and gave me a lot of encouragement to and support with, with the project and said, take your time, do it right. There's no rush. It'll be done when it's supposed to be done. A lot of those things were very meaningful to me because I was nervous and anxious about where it was going and if it would be good, if I'd be good enough. And he said, let me know when you're ready and, and how I can help. And so I said, wow, a forward would be terrific. And so when it came time in 2012, 10, uh, 22, 10 years after we, we started working together, he remembered his, his, his offer when I circled back with him. And we had a really uh, great time uh, in person and, and a few phone conversations working through the forward together and, and uh, really enjoyed some special conversations. Do you love football? That's a great question. You know, uh, growing up in Pittsburgh as a skinny kid, I, I wasn't big enough to play. I, I was I had some athletic genes, and I, I was a good tennis player and even an ice hockey player, but I thought they would snap me in two if I played football. And <laughs> frankly, I was afraid to play. Um, and, and I call Pittsburgh the land of the large people because there are some, you know, the average weight in Pittsburgh seemed like it was, you know, for, for – fully formed people was over 200 pounds and I was about 140 pounds in high school. So I love to watch the game. I, I'm in, inspired by it, but, uh, and my dad was a great college football player at Carnegie Mellon, which was called Carnegie tech when he was there. So it was in my family, but he didn't encourage me to play. And, and I just kind of shied away from it. But boy, I love the feelers. Greg Fisseri has been with us. He is author of the book Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. Here we go with another edition of the History Mystery on the Historian's Podcast. Takes us back to January, January 15th, 1967. Two teams played a football game at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, a game that would later be dubbed Super Bowl I. At the time, who knew? <laughs> the question is, who won that game? Here we go. Here are your choices. The New York Giants, the Kansas City Chiefs, or the Green Bay Packers. Three logical choices for the time. The answer in just a second. Thank you, Dave. Want to talk a little bit about our fundraising activities for the Historians Podcast. We welcome your donations. Donations are coming in very slowly this year, uh, which it may be kind of odd to hear that because from time to time we'll get a very generous donation that'll pump us up a little bit. But in, in general, we're just not getting the donations we need to meet our $7,000 goal for this year. So here's how you donate. Uh, first, you can uh, donate online. Uh, go to our website, bobcudmore.com, and look for the blue 
button and hit the blue button takes you to GoFundMe and they'll explain there how you can donate online. Or you can donate the old-fashioned way. Uh, just write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you. Thank you very much. Well, in, in terms of the history mystery question, the Green Bay Packers won the game, defeating the Kansas City Chiefs 35 to 10 in 1967 to win what came to be called Super Bowl One. Our guest on the Historians Podcast has been Greg Fissery, author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.